AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is AlienLegacy.html, Resurrection Edition. Mm, mm-hmm. We have sailed the many waves of space on the Nostromo. Yes. We have survived the alien apocalypse aboard the Sulaco. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We've dealt with Alien 3. I believe it's pronounced Alien Cube. Made that joke last time. It's still true. I believe it's pronounced Alien Twa. And now here we are at Alien Resurrection, which I've described Alien 3 as a bad movie directed beautifully. This is an alright movie directed horribly. You know, it's funny, we spent so much time talking about the reasons that Alien 3 went wrong because it was so many different drafts and ideas, but this film didn't go through that, and instead it suffered from many of its creators having different visions for what it and the future of this franchise franchise would be, so a different sort of conflict of different motivations, and no better for it, that's for sure. One of the magical things about Ripley's journey is it is about ascendance. She's an average woman. She doesn't expect anything like this to ever happen to her. She's a part of a non-military vessel. She's essentially a long freight hauler. And she winds up the central figure in this tapestry of survival. It's very different than the life she expected for herself. And it's on a much grander scale. She couldn't have seen her ultimate destiny lying in an endless process of rebirths. And that's part of why Sigourney Weaver, I believe, became so hesitant to continue reprising the role of Ellen Ripley because she understood that about the character. There's something inherently special about Ripley, yes, because she is a very heroic figure, but it's not an actual special destiny. She just got caught up in something very complicated. And to keep bringing the character back over and over again, she was afraid of Ripley becoming a figure of fun, so to speak who would continuously wake up with monsters running around, and was very worried about what that would do to a character who by this point in time had become so iconic. And it's interesting that you say we just keep waking up to monsters. I believe I recently read something about the fact that they've been kicking around Alien vs. Predator since between Alien 3 and Resurrection, and they legitimately considered doing AVP as early as the mid-90s, which for Sigourney Weaver was a big no-no, and she initially was going to depart the series because of this, thinking that the idea was just god-awful. Oh yeah, I definitely read the same thing. And I think, in that sense, we could have gotten like... Ripley Van Helsing, and that would have been awesome, but at the same time, I don't know that Ash and Ripley teaming up against the monsters is the franchise I've always been craving, but now it clearly is. And it's interesting how far you can stretch things like this without breaking them. I would love to see that version of a film. I don't know if that is what I would want for the core character of Ripley. I think that might be a little too over the top, but the thing that immediately flashed in my mind 
was when they were first adapting, of all things, the novel Twilight. And at first, they were discussing the idea of Bella Swan being a motorcycle-driving vampire hunter. And ultimately, they went with a deeply faithful adaptation of the book. That's arguable for people who care more, but it's fairly faithful to the book anyway, more so than vampire hunters. It's interesting to think about the ways in which people would interpret characters and concepts and properties that completely reinvigorate and reimagine a character like that. That would be such a different Ellen Ripley if she was some kind of Van Helsing alien hunter. I would enjoy seeing it. It would just be such a dramatic departure from what the franchise is and who the character starts as. For sure who the character starts as, but by this point, isn't she already? Isn't she already the Van Helsing of Xenomorphs? Isn't she already Ripley, the Xenomorph Destroyer, kicking them all straight out the airlock? Ripley the Xenomorph Destroyer. That sounds like a title of something already by a writer I might know. Oh, oh, I know this one. That's Martha the Immortal Waitress. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. By all accounts, from the top of this thing, 20th Century Fox was specifically impressed with Whedon's work as a screenwriter, hired him to write the film. His credits at the time were a bit few, so I'm kind of surprised that they were so impressed at the time. He was mostly known as having been a staff writer on Roseanne and Parenthood, and as a script doctor. Some of his works include The Getaway, Speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, Waterworld, which was co-written by David Toy who got mentioned in the Alien Cubed episode last week, as well as Twister. He also, while script consulting, wrote the scripts for the Buffy movie, Alien Res, an early draft for Atlantis, The Lost Empire, as well as co-writing Toy Story and Titan AE, the former of which earned him a shared Academy Award nom for Best Original Screenplay. It's interesting that I've found that most of those titles that got made, Joss Whedon is deeply unhappy with the results of. You gotta start to wonder if this man is ever happy with the way his work comes out. It's also fascinating to realize how indelible his mark has been on so many franchises, whether directly or indirectly. Obviously, he's responsible for both. He's the fellow who directed the first two Avengers movies and consulted on Thor and Captain America, as well as helping shape the second phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He wrote Astonishing X-Men, one of the most significant runs on the franchise in the last 20 years. He wrote one of the few arcs of Runaways in its early years not by the creator. He even, we can step back and see, has worked on Toy Story, Alien. The man's fingerprint is all over so many careers, and then there's even franchises he's affected indirectly. Summer Glau was discovered by Joss Whedon, and then he put her in an episode of Angel, which led to her being a regular on Firefly, which also led to her being in the Terminator TV show. And like most science fiction franchises sooner or later. Who is she? Jewel State? They were impressed with his script doctoring, I guess, and and hired him as the screenwriter for Alien Resurrection, which was initially imagined to center around a clone of Newt, actually, and he composed a 30-page treatment before being informed that, though impressed with his script, the studio now intended to base the story on a clone of Ripley, whom they saw as the anchor of the series. It was actually Guyler and Hill who suggested cloning as a way to bring Ripley 
simply in, though they were opposed to the whole production, feeling it would ruin the franchise. That has to be such a weird thing to then be known for. Back in comics land, one time Peter David made a joke at an X-Men summit when they were like, okay, but we need something. We need something. What can Magneto do that's just crazy? And Peter David jokingly was like, he could just rip Wolverine's adamantium out of his skeleton. And everybody was like, run with that. And Peter David was like, what? No, don't do that. What? No, don't do that. It kind of sounds like they were like, I mean, I wouldn't bring her back. If you did bring her back, I guess you should go with cloning. I mean, it at least worked enough for Sigourney Weaver, who was impressed with Joss Whedon's script and thought the clone aspect would be interesting to explore as an actor. So on top of a co-producer credit, Weaver came in for a reported $11 million on this film. And she's worth every penny, if for no other reason, at this point in history, I don't think there was another woman anchoring a multi-year sci-fi franchise. If you take a look at Star Wars, it's Harrison Ford. If you take a look at Indiana Jones, it's Harrison Ford. If you take a look at Terminator, it was Arnold. If you take a look at Jack Ryan, it was Harrison Ford. I feel like I'm noticing a theme. Get off my plane. There were a handful of other superheroes, like Batman, who by this point had had three films and its ill-fated nipple-bound fourth film was on its way. But Ripley really did represent a very different idea in action films, and there was no denying the box office receipts. The films were hits. And especially after the third time that Batman got changed over in less than ten years, there was something very powerful about the fact that Sigourney Weaver was still coming back almost 20 years later to continue playing this character. Still doing an amazing job, still looking amazing, everything. The producer's first choice for the director of the film was actually train spotting director Danny Boyle, who had a meeting with the effect supervisors but decided he was not interested and instead went on to make A Life Less Ordinary with train spotting writer John Hodge instead, which is a film that also features Dan Hedaya in a version of Heaven that's a police station where angels are also matchmakers and Holly Hunter is attempting to match Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz. I hate that so much on paper I want to set it on fire. Yeah, I know. I ultimately can't tell who got the worst deal out of this. You didn't really dodge a bullet. You moved aside and got hit by a different one. At least it was your own bullet. Speaking of bullets, Brian Singer was approached to direct in 1995. I don't know why that didn't pan out exactly, but ultimately the honor went to Jean-Pierre Jeannot, who to American audiences is perhaps best known for writing and directing the 2001 film Amelie, starring Ajay Tattoo. I sort of demand Ailey Amelie now. Yeah, okay. I'm into that. I just need stills from Amelie with a xenomorph spliced in. As long as Audrey Tattoo is still playing the character. He would also reunite with that actor for his film adaptation of A Very Long Engagement, which I loved. The thing that drew the attention of 20th Century Fox to him as a director was the 1990 film The City of Lost Children that he made with frequent collaborator, designer, and comic book artist, as well as co-director Mark Caro. It is a dark, multi-layered fantasy film about a mad scientist who steals children's dreams so that he can live indefinitely, starring Ron Perlman. Not as the guy stealing people's dreams, though. Oh, good, because I love my precious Ron Perls. Yeah, no, he's the good guy in it. The success of that film led to the invitation to direct Alien Resurrection. Partner Mark Caro declined to be involved, though eventually did end up assisting for a few weeks on things like design and whatnot. The producers felt that he had a unique visual style. Jeannot was surprised, thinking the franchise had already finished with Alien 3, and believing that making a sequel was a bad idea. He, however, accepted the project with a budget of $70 million. 
characters. I get it, but apparently he needed an interpreter on set as he did not speak much English when filming began. That does in some ways explain a lot. We're gonna call that Roxette Syndrome. For ah. those unfamiliar, Roxette didn't speak English at the time of the height of their popularity and instead learned their songs phonetically, the way Justin Bieber learns Spanish or Avril Lavigne learns Japanese for a song. I do have to say in defense of the crew and the director and everyone, he brought in his own team, as many people do, his own French special effects supervisor and cinematographer, both of whom he had worked with on City of Lost Children, but the crew watched a bunch of the latest science fiction and all of the Alien films as reference material, and not only that, but obtained production reports from Alien films to study the camera setups. So, like, that is some pretty serious dedication to making sure that you are staying faithful to the vision of the film. It explains why we noticed a bunch of beautiful visuals in a movie that is directed like, you know, now that you say that it's directed by the guy who did Amelie, I'm like, yeah, it's directed like a magical non sequitur fairy tale. Well, and part of it is for better or for worse, he was given a ton of creative control in making the film what he wanted to. So he really leaned into the dark comedy aspect. And not only that, but was encouraged to include more violence by the studio, which 1997 makes sense disappointing because that's not exactly what Alien is about, even though it's a franchise about things bursting out of people's chests. And that's sort of the trade-off. By making this film series across so many decades, you're subject to the whims of the decade just as much as you're subject to the storytelling of the director. The 1970s were about terror and new. We saw the idea of exploring new science fiction modalities in Star Wars, and it was juxtaposed against the backdrop of classic serials. We saw the Summer of Fear in Jaws, and Alien, which homogenized the two ideas. Throughout the 80s, we saw the rise of the action hero, and Alien responded in kind. The 90s, especially the early 90s, were about gritty, graffiti, and puke. So that's what Alien Cube was about. And here, Alien Resurrection is very much that inflated, high-stakes 90s kind of Armageddon. I just, you know, don't want to chest burst a thing is the only thing missing from this film in some regards. Well, here's a fun fact. Filming for this took place from October 1996 to February 1997 and had difficulty securing studio space as the major Hollywood blockbusters Titanic, Starship Troopers, and The Lost World Jurassic Park were all filming at the same time. So that gives a little more perspective and insight as to some of the films that were coming out even around the same time. It's so fascinating that you would say Starship Troopers when we know as a fact that James Cameron provided a set with copies of Starship Troopers for Aliens. Yeah, exactly. I also thought it was really interesting to see that filming wrapped in February of 1997, which means it was only about a month before Buffy the Vampire Slayer debuted on the WB Network. And I imagine that's part of how Joss Whedon was able to skirt some of the blame for this creature. Probably, yeah. Another fun fact, this was the first film of the Alien franchise to be filmed outside of England. It was a decision made by Sigourney Weaver, who believed that the previous film's travel schedules exhausted the crew. I get that. We even talked in the Aliens episode about how having to break for tea really affected production schedule. So, the last prong in my BTS trifecta is composer, a man by the name of John Frizzle. His only major work, and I put major in quotes, before this really was Beavis and Butthead Do America in 1996. He had a few notable works afterwards, such as I Still Know What You Did Last
last summer, Office Space, Teaching Mrs. Tingle. A personal favorite for me, Josie and the Pussycats in 2001. That was pretty cool. A lot since then has mostly been like minor horror fare, including the 2011 masterpiece, The Roommate, starring the incomparable Leighton Meester. And Minka Kelly, we saw that for my birthday! Yes, we did! I think Dan Hedaya looks kind of like an angry raccoon. Yes, he looks like the human form of an anthropomorphic, angry cartoon raccoon. But like a city raccoon, not like a Miko raccoon. Yeah, like a smarmy raccoon who's very like, you know, Are you coming into my trash can? If you're coming into my trash can, you ask for respect. Yeah, and frankly, Dan Hedaya being such a major character in this film is probably one of the major reasons that it was so hard for me to immerse myself in it. I just keep seeing Cher Horowitz's dad, and that's not Dan Hedaya's fault, but it is what it is. Also, that one guy who looks horrifying and was horrifying in everything. What's his name in Lord of the Rings? Is it Wormtongue? Is it? It might be, yeah. Ooh, I hadn't realized that that's also that guy. I always think of him as Billy Bibbit from Cuckoo's Nest, and like, I, no, can't, can't, disturbing, I can't see him in anything else, and his character is annoying. If you listen to X's for Podcast, he a little bit reminds me of a Gargunza type character. A very annoying, snarky, rude scientist trope. And I think putting a performer in the role who I already don't enjoy probably didn't help. And it's sort of that trade-off. The alien films are mostly populated by actors who portray characters that become part of the scenery. One of the magical elements of Alien is that Alien always feels like a scenic experience. I will say this for anything I didn't like about Alien Cubed, at no point did I feel that it broke the mold of the other Alien films. I just thought that it executed it the most poorly. Here, I'm confronted by a film that misses the fucking point of being an Alien film. It has every point of being a Joss Whedon film, and it has every point of being a Jean Benet Amelie film, but it doesn't hit what I need in an Alien film. Each one of these characters is trying to steal the show from the beginning. And we have this extended, like, hyper-science opening, and that is completely counterintuitive of films one, two, three, five. And I think, I don't know, it's not even that it's a great script, it's an okay script. It's an okay script that was directed poorly, but, like, this direction could have been better on a better script. I don't think Alien Resurrection sucks the way other people think Alien Resurrection sucks. I think it's kind of like the alien-human hybrid. It's an unfortunate creature that is a product of the storytelling of its time. There's great ideas in there, but it, for the most part, is very WPIX Sunday at 2 o'clock. I really don't disagree. I almost wish that Ripley was played by a different actor, especially since she is simply a clone of the original and a hybrid and that, so not necessarily would have to look 100% like Sigourney Weaver. I think that would maybe help develop the sense of it not being an exact continuation of the same story. 
Something that I'm going to be talking about a lot when we get into StarWars.html is my feelings about The Phantom Menace are, if you view it as a Star Wars story instead of a Star Wars episode, it's actually not as horrible a movie. If you try and insist that it is necessary to the main narrative of the Star Wars episodes and this Skywalker saga, it's plotting and even annoying. But if you're just viewing it as a story that exists in the same universe, that, you know, has ties to the original and the ongoing bigger myth arc of the franchise, sure, then it can be, you know, a fun romp. This isn't really a fourth point of a quadrilogy. It's an alien story, if you will. And I love you saying it's an alien story because the alien franchise is going to become populated by that notion, alien stories. We will get the David two-parter. We will get the AVP two-parter. Amanda Ripley has her own successful franchise and evidently James Cameron wants back in and Ridley Scott's doing a third film in the Prometheus line as well as a possible YouTube Red series. I mean, I'm into it. It's just they're always so up and down with all these different, you know, we're going to do it. We're not going to do it. So. I want to see more. This film, at the very least, proves how much potential there is to grow in many different directions for the story. I love that you brought up The Phantom Menace, because when I think about The Phantom Menace, the production and the design work and the writing on The Phantom Menace probably fell around 1996-1997, so that filming could take place in 98 for a 1999 release. 1996 marked the 100th anniversary of the Olympics, and the entire world celebrated the 100th anniversary at the Olympic site in Atlanta, Georgia. There was a sense of yes we can, that we were building toward the millennium. There was a positivity and an excitement. There was a joy. But any massive excitement is met by an equally excited idea of counterculture. Now that is not to say people anthema to the ideas proposed by the majority, but the underbelly of that warm positivity that was the focal idea of Phantom Menace was things like trans men being published and written by Warren Ellis, which gave birth to The Matrix and this sort of emerging idea of cyberpunk body horror. And I feel like this very much fit that horrification of science fiction toward the end of the 90s. That was a response to the celebration culture that the 100th Olympics and Millennium brought about. Oh, absolutely. Whether you feel positively or negatively on this film, a lot of the Ripley clone saga is iconic in science fiction. That kill me scene with the clone, the clone begging Ripley to kill her, is so well known and is frequently paid homage to. This movie also sets the groundwork for a very popular style of horror film that's going to follow, whether it's films like Cube or Resident Evil. This idea of we're trapped in a murder game, we have to get out, with a science fiction bend to it, becomes very popular. And it really is its own genre of film in such a way that I actually kind of merge parts of this film with parts of Resident Evil in my head, which makes no sense because I think Michelle Rodriguez only plays the alien in Resurrection. You know, I actually really get what you mean. I hadn't considered that point before, but I really do see it now. I think because the trend took so much longer after Alien Resurrection to 
pick up Steam. I hadn't considered it, but yeah, and it feels like an evolution of the original Alien concept, but it's now become a little bit more of a pattern than it started as, obviously, because when it started it was still, you know, a fresh new idea. It's sort of like how Seasons of Power Rangers have become more cookie cutter now. At the beginning, it was a brand new thing. But now it's just, you know, what is this alien attacking people and everyone dying story? And it's in that vein that I'm glad we're taking a look at this film as something different than the others. Alien is a story of a group of survivors trying to ensure that no one else meets their same fate, whether it's kill the alien or blow up the ship. Aliens is the same idea. They will defend their new home or they'll blow it to fucking pieces to make sure these aliens can't get off the ship. With Alien cubed, it's the same thing with a prison colony. But with Alien Resurrection, the threat is a deeper, more pervasive idea. The threat is we've already failed. The aliens have been assimilated by the science team. The actual bad guys of Resurrection are Waylon Yutani, not the aliens. And it's a strong disengagement from the central idea of survivor horror. And it's what starts the new cycle for me. Prometheus, also not about survival horror, also more about how Waylon Yutani is evil. Covenant, the same deal. I find those contrasts important because the first series is the Ripley cycle. One, two, and Cubed are the Ripley cycle. And you know what? I'm going to start giving Cubed a pass because when viewed as a trilogy and a resurrection, the kickoff to Prometheus and Covenant, you really are looking at the discussion of evolution. Alien Resurrection represents evolution at the end of the line. Prometheus is going to represent the beginning stages of that evolutionary line. I think looking at it that way, Alien Resurrection may watch better after Covenant, but then would suffer from being two shitty movies in a row, and also being 20 years before the quality of Covenant, because no matter what, it's a beautiful film. Well, unfortunately, A, that is one of the perils of telling a science fiction franchise over 40 to 50 years, is that technology is going to improve. I'm sure Covenant is going to look embarrassing 30 years from now. And B, you know, that's one of the things that gets me about this franchise. I would love to sit down and do a chronological watch of this, like you're suggesting even. But this film leaves me with so many more questions. Like, why is Paris a wasteland? What's going on at this point 200 years in the future? We aren't really given a lot of information about what is going on in the world. We know that Waylon Yutani is still evil two centuries later. But that's about it. I don't even know what world they live in anymore. Are we ever going to see more stories there? Are we going to see stories about what led us there? I don't know. I think another thing that tripped me up about this movie, though, is you mentioned the aliens aren't the bad guys. Waylon Yutani is the bad guys. And I agree. I think the dynamic is flipped where Waylon Yutani is more prominent villains. But there's no heroes in this story, to be honest. The pirate people that we are supposedly supposed to root for kidnapped a bunch of innocent people and sold them into medical experiments that killed all of them. I don't root for any of these goddamn people. Unless you're going to tell me that Jonner and Reese are a gay couple after they kiss at the end, because, like, queer visibility, I'll give you a minor pass, but otherwise, no. And I really agree with you, because I feel like one of the biggest problems is Alien is meant to be about flawed people, and so frequently the people behind the lens get confused and they make it about horrible people. Mm. And that is not nearly the same thing. What you said when you said the word pirates, I don't know how it jogged this into my memory, but I immediately jumped to Rogue One for 
some reason. And there's like really minor parallels. Like there aren't really parallels, but there are some parallels. And I think where I'm really like <gasps> about it is Rogue One represents one small group of rebels trying to get their hands on this thing they need for this one plan. And when you said, imagine this is just an alien story, in my mind, this is one of 75 centers that are growing Ripley's. And I bet there's 25 centers growing Newt's. And I bet there's 50 centers growing Hicks's. And they're set up all over space. And if you think about this as one story, I love it. I love all of that. And I really love you drawing the comparison to Rogue One. Because I think in many ways, the ways that Rogue One mirrors Star Wars A New Hope are similar to the ways that Alien Resurrection mirrors Alien. Unlike the crew of the Betty in Alien Resurrection are sort of the antithesis of the crew of the Nostromo, where the crew of the Nostromo are, as we discussed, large freight haulers. These people are pirates. They steal from people like the crew of the Nostromo. The rebels in Rogue One aren't real rebels. They're just a ragtag group of criminals, basically, who are also living under the thumb of the Empire. But unlike Alien Resurrection, Rogue One is a story about people like that who come together for a positive goal and to accomplish something good. And it's one of the ways in which the franchises are very different. Star Wars is a science fiction franchise about people doing that, coming together to do good for each other. And Alien is a franchise about how it doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. A xenomorph is still going to kill you indiscriminately. And there's another layer to that, too. They're all kind of products of their time. In the 70s, CB radios were all the rage and people communicated while traveling great distances and it was this new idea of freedom thanks to improved automotive transport. And a sense of isolation, too. Absolutely. The response film in that regard that this is, for the 90s, represented corporations are out to get us and what's in our food and... <laughs> Sort of like gross-out horror of the 90s. By the same token, then, Rogue One represents this idea that we can work together to stop political unrest, even if occasionally our methods are minorly nefarious. I concur. While we've talked a lot about the thematic similarities and continuities between the Alien films, it really does seem like standing here at the back end of Alien Resurrection, like, there's no arguing it. Alien Resurrection is the beginning of a new era for the Alien film franchise. I do completely agree. I think that it is the first step toward the series becoming a Wire franchise that can function even without Ellen Ripley, because despite Sigourney Weaver having starred in this film, she's not really Ellen Ripley. She's certainly not Ellen Ripley in any way that counts the way Ellen Ripley counted in the previous films. I think in the end, I really thought I was going to go into this movie liking it and Alien 3 the same I'd liked them in the first place, but honestly, they've both kind of gone up and down this watch. I do feel ready to say goodbye to Alien Resurrection. I don't feel the need to come back to this film anytime soon. I do agree with that. I believe the next time that I come back to it, it will be with a better attitude and fresher eyes, but I am good 
to lay it to rest for the time being. Absolutely. The next few Alien films are going to focus primarily on the idea of evolution instead of the notion of domination. And in that regard, Alien Resurrection is the uncomfortable precursor to Prometheus. Say what you want about Prometheus and Covenant, but in some ways, I guess, to compare it to even another sci-fi franchise, you could argue that Alien Resurrection is the original Battlestar Galactica to Prometheus's revamping in the form of the sci-fi Ronald D. Moore Battlestar. Kind of takes like elements of that very cheesy time and something that didn't age so well and tries to age it into a modern way. I kind of see what you're saying. Yeah, I don't love how accurate that is chronologically in terms of time gap between Resurrection and Covenant because now I feel unbelievably old, but you know, time makes fools of us all. And until we return for time to make enormous fools of everybody involved with AVP, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me posting way too frequently on the Facebook page for this lovely show, Husbands Talking More or Less, which you can find at Real Nico Kevo Action, which is also where you will find us on Instagram and Tumblr, but not Twitter due to character limits, where instead we are Real Nico Kevo Ack, A-C-K. You can also find the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories that Nico and I tell over at KidRideComics.com, which we will be representing this week at New York Comic Con. So definitely stop by booth 1483 if you're going to be at NYCC and check us out. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, which I make with my childhood best friend Chris Podcast, where we talk about the Now That's What I Call Music series and observe the changes in pop music over the last two decades. Don't forget to check out X's for Podcast, where along with Jonah, Kyle, Dylan, and more, we take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise and examine just what made it the master success it is, as well as analyzing major runs from the last few years. You can look me up on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I'm always flexing with no shirt on. All right. And until we come back to set sail aboard the no ship and fight a whole bunch of aliens that really don't seem like they interact at all throughout the film, we'll see ya. Bye!